And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And as we're learning this afternoon from author Rebecca Hagelin and the new book she's written called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family, it's not the battlefield for the heart and mind of your child. It's the battlefields, plural, be it media, advertising, social engineering, uh, those that would literally um, uh, prey upon your children in the arena of sex trade, pedophilia, even the pressure that they receive from their peers, all comes together to conspire against the parent who is really trying in this day and age to uh, train up a child in the way that he or she should go and uh, have love and respect and uh, live to a set of, of moral codes or moral values that you and your faith have established for your son or daughter. And of course, one of the issues at play here is that, as I mentioned before the break, Rebecca, parents can get weary and tired, but this um, this is much like a real war, isn't it? In that the soldiers need to commit and recommit to this on a daily basis if we're ever going to have any chance of winning. Yeah, I call it purposeful parenting. And you really do have to get up in your heart every day uh, committed to this battle. Because guess what? The pornographers don't start. The people who are teaching our children that they're just here by accident, you know, um, there's some advanced form of primordial ooze, they don't stop. The garbage on the television or the internet doesn't stop. So what I did when I was a parent of three teenagers simultaneously, I started waking up with a simple prayer in my heart, which went something like this, and I've got it in the chapter on Commit to the Daily Battle. Dear Lord, please help me today, on this one day, to stand up for the principles that you've set for my family, to to touch my children in some deep and meaningful way in their heart, so that I know that they know that I love them, and I'm there for them, and I have their backs. Just give me enough grace on this one day to be courageous and joyful, Lord. And and I can tell you, if you break it down day by day, you can do this. And you can find great joy because when you share truth with your children, you help them determine between truth and lies. Great joy and freedom comes from that. Um, you know, one of the other things that's really important in this daily battle, and I have a whole chapter on this too, is you don't make your house a no zone. It can't be, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do this. You have to be able to help your children make alternative choices that are fun and enjoyable for them. And again, this is about finding joy in parenting um, God's way. And it's actually woven all throughout every chapter on the book about how to do that. Now, it could be argued, well, uh, Rebecca, here's the challenge. Uh, There are so many arenas, as we've suggested, that uh, parents are battling today. My goodness, how could I ever hope to inoculate them against everything that's out there? And I guess that's the difference between uh, teaching them item by item versus equipping them with the ability to think on their own based on a set of moral guidelines and standards that would serve as the compass or the guidelines for them so that when they run into things that are not good and not healthy for them, be it the source of the Internet, television, social media, whatever, that they've got the capacity to be able to engage in some judgment call on their own. 
That's exactly right. I mean, the purpose of my book is not to tell parents to build walls around your children to protect them from the world. Number one, that's a bad idea. Number two, you can't do that. You do exactly what you just said. It's about developing in them an internal moral compass and showing them how to use it. Because your children are going out into the world every day. In just a few short years, they're going to be walking down that graduation aisle and out your door. And, you know, our children are not always going to make the right choices. But my husband and I determined they are going to know the difference between right and wrong. They're not going to live, leave our house wondering what is right. And they're not going to leave our house believing in all the lies that the culture is trying to teach them. And it makes them stronger and it uh, makes them really protecting them from a lot of the negative consequences that their peers are going to be suffering. Um, if you teach them these strong moral principles when they're young and do it every day. And of course, that also takes some commitment on our behalf, doesn't it? I mean, it would be nice to say as a parent, well, here's this list of do's and don'ts that I've typed up. So just keep this in your back pocket. And whenever a question comes up, just refer to the list. I mean, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that, as we're suggesting. And I would imagine that in terms of helping them understand and, and create the ability to reason through and know the difference in the variety of ways in which they will be bombarded by all of these sources with the kind of tough choices that they have to make. And that, I guess, at the end of the day, Rebecca comes simply through time and interaction with our kids. You you can't do this by remote, can you? No, you can't. I mean, you know, the world will try to tell you, oh, don't worry, it's about quality time versus quantity time. You know, it's actually both. I mean, God gave little babies to moms and dads for a reason. It's because we are supposed to hold them in our arms and in our hearts and teach them what is true and what is not true. And you can't do that in just a few minutes a day. Uh, You do it over a lifetime. You do it by creating family time. You know, I've got a chapter in there on that, and that's what it's called. And I use the word create very deliberately because you're not going to find extra family time. You have to create it in today's culture. And you have to learn how to have meaningful discussions with your children. And and I provide some tips that work for others um, that are in the book as well. And uh, again, you know, when children are in a home where they know mom and dad are committed to them, where they understand, you know, where the boundaries are and what the foundation is, children, study after study reveals they're happier, they're healthier emotionally, um, they're less likely to be involved in drugs or sexual activity outside of marriage. It's just a thousand and one reasons why you should be engaged in purposeful parenting and and starting afresh and anew tonight if if you've not done that before. And going back to my notion that a a simple list of do's and don'ts is not going to cut it, is modeling important here so that as the child watches you make the decisions and go through just day-to-day household life and what it means to be a parent and the child is watching you is it important that you're you're modeling consistency in terms of setting the example yes it's always important i've actually got chapters there about helping to teach your children how to to make good friendships and uh part of that includes why don't you mom and dad take a few minutes to examine your own friendship Um, Your children are watching the friends you choose. Um, There's information there. You know, a lot of people worry about their kids dealing with peer pressure. Well, there are a lot of moms and dads that don't deal too well with peer pressure ourselves. 
And um, so there's information there, kind of look like a little workbook at the end of each chapter to help parents kind of get their own house in order and realize uh, that they do have to set that a good example. And your children are really, they're dying for you to do that. They're just waiting for you to step up to the plate and really practice what we preach. And, um, and, and again, a lot of joy comes from when you do that and live that way. And Rebecca, I would imagine they're probably watching a lot closer than we would suspect. In other words, the inconsistency of saying to a child, uh, it's not okay to steal gum, uh, you know, walking through the uh, the five and dime store. Does it even exist anymore? <laughs> it's not okay to steal gum. So you're, you're trying to instill in your child the notion that it's not okay to steal. And then for your child to overhear a conversation between you and your spouse about how you've underreported, uh, you know, some side income from your income taxes, they're, they're going to catch on to those things, aren't they? Oh, they're totally going to catch on to those things. And, you know, when you tell your child, you get a phone call and you say, tell them I'm not here. And you think, oh, that's just a little white lie. A lie is a lie. And your children are learning from you. And they know that, oh, mom and dad tell me it's wrong to lie, but they lie to their friends. So it really starts with examining, you know, your own heart and home and and mom and dad sitting down and, and realizing, you know what, if we've made mistakes... It's okay. We're going to start over. One of one of the things I find um, that's so sad is parents of teenagers. Oftentimes, they'll hear me speak and they'll think, beginning, "Oh, it's too late. I've done it all wrong." And my my answer to that is, as long as there is breath in you, there was there's always a chance to repair and restore and make stronger a relationship in your life. And along with that. Um our kids are looking for heroes. In a day and an age when there are so many anti-heroes out there, wouldn't it be nice whether you're starting when, you know, the kids are, are six days old, six years, or, you know, they're in your 60s and you're in your 80s, to be able to, to have a son or a daughter say, mom was my hero, dad is my hero? Oh, my goodness. It's so important. Um, and again, I have another chapter on that because today hero is confused with sports star, right? Oh, yes. Or movie <laughs> star or recording star. And it's very important to teach our children what makes a real hero and what a hero is so that they can learn to do heroic things in their own life. You know, a hero is, is most often described as somebody who makes sacrifices on behalf of another. And uh, we need to teach our children that and find heroes in your own family to start with. Maybe you had a, a you know, a great grandfather or grandfather who who has served in World War II, or you know, or maybe you have a friend whose son is a soldier in Afghanistan or something. And look for heroes close to home. Um, and tell their stories to your children and show them as role models, you know, rather than that latest basketball star who's in trouble again um, for the way he's treated his girlfriend or something. Um, very important for our kids to understand that. Yeah, and, and helping them to understand the difference, as Rebecca points out. Uh, newsflash for a lot of kids and parents out there. Kim Kardashian's not a hero. Kanye West is not a hero. But there are plenty of heroes out there, and you can start to uh, influence your child in a big way to become a hero in their eyes as well, no matter when you start. And I think that's an encouraging message that Rebecca Hegelin has shared with us today. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And what's great about the book is it's it's pretty interactive, and um, a lot of the uh, sort of the backside of all of these uh, insights uh, are followed up on by 
Rebecca's daughter. And so you get a chance to kind of see the parental perspective, child's perspective, what all that means and how that dialogue, how that interaction, how that quality time can come about. The book again, 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. It's author, our guest on this edition of Lifeline, Rebecca Heglin. Rebecca, thanks so much for your time today. The book, by the way, published by David Cook, available in bookstores throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com, as well as on on Rebecca's website, theresurgent.com. That's theresurgent.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Nineteen young men traveled to the United States, some on tourist visas, others on student visas, and stay here for a protracted period of time, many of whom exceed their 90 days, and yet it seems to go entirely unnoticed. They set up camp and begin taking classes in commercial airline pilot training. But they're very specific in telling the instructor they're not interested in learning how to take the plane off the ground nor land the plane, just how to fly the plane once it gets in the air. On a single morning, one Tuesday back in 2001, they all board flights sitting in the first-class section of a number of major airliners in four strategic communities around the United States. They engage in conversation in Arabic, and yet no one seems to notice. And, of course, by 8 o'clock that morning on the East Coast, the first commercial airliner had been flown into the World Trade Center, and the world as we know it changed and changed drastically. It might be argued that in the days and weeks and months preceding September the 11th of 2001, that it should have been obvious, that we should have known that something was going on, because after all, so many of their activities were hidden in plain sight. That not only, I think, is a great description of the events that led up to the tragedy that we know now as 9-11, but then to the title of a new book that helps to explain in great detail from a news and historical slash biblical perspective what else has been hidden in plain sight before the church and that is the signposts of the coming of the antichrist joining me today in studio is the author of this new book hidden in plain sight mark davidson mark great to have you on the program Thank you for having me on your program, Greg. I guess it can be fairly reasonably argued that much of what led up to 9-11, for those that could have been paying attention, maybe arguably should have been paying attention, we just kind of seemed to ignore. We ignored it until it was too late. Is the same thing true post-9-11 from a prophetic standpoint of what's been going on in the world stage and in history, that a lot of these events unfolding in light of biblical prophecy is largely being ignored by the church? I believe so. Uh, I think it's because we're looking in the wrong places. We're looking for something to come out of Europe or Rome. And we look at the Middle East and we say, well, there's a bunch of chaos. There's a bunch of events going on. And we think perhaps that, uh, yeah, it, it may support prophecy, but there's nothing specific. And the specific things we may be looking for in Europe just aren't happening. And so we just see all these events before us. Take us back. Uh, many of us can recall back to a time in the late 1970s, for example, when there was a good percentage of Christians, many of whom were spurred on by uh, the writings of people like Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, that felt fairly well convinced based on their interpretation of uh, Daniel 7 and 9, Ezekiel 38 and 9, that the the hook, so to speak, would be put into the jaw of Gog and Magog and pulled down upon Israel uh, to launch what 
what would be the last great battle, the Battle of Armageddon. And the interpretation at that time was, well, this clearly had to mean the Soviet Union. Well, as we know, in history, the Soviet Union has uh, since come and gone and been splintered apart to and fro. Um, Much of what we thought would transpire surely by the mid-1980s, certainly by the end of the the decade, if not the millennium, if not ushered in by the change to the new millennium, all of this has come and gone. Now some folks are even pointing to uh, this year, December of this year, that maybe some secret Mm -hmm. is hidden within the Mayan calendar that will tell us when it all comes to a conclusion. What has changed and, and what has perhaps been the failure of our understanding and application of scripture and prophecy in specific, whether we're talking about Daniel or Ezekiel or even the book of Revelation, uh, that back then in the 1970s, we thought so sure we understood that now today, 30 years later, has been proven to be so wrong. Well, prior to the 1970s, for about 1,800 years, we've been going on the the momentum that the Antichrist was going to be coming out of a revived Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Uh, Irenaeus and uh, um, Hippolytus, uh, a couple of the church fathers, first mentioned this, that that uh, the lion with wings in Daniel 7 was ba- ancient Babylon and that the, the great terrible creature was Rome and that the iron legs and the statue was Rome. And the city so built on seven hills, Rome. Mm-hmm. Well, they also fail to mention that potentially the Antichrist could have come out of San Francisco because it's built on seven hills as well. As is Constantinople. <laughs> there you go. Um so, 1,800 years of momentum that never really changed. And so now we see, we saw back in the 60s and 70s, the European community coming together. It had six members and then seven members. And then when Hal Lindsey's book came out, uh, I think we were just starting to uh, get into nine members. And then around, it was around 1980 or so, Greece joined, and we had ten. And so we thought, there's our ten toes, there's our ten horns coming out of the Roman, the old Roman Empire. And, uh, well, then by and by it became 15 and then 23. And I think now we're last count is about 27. What we're looking at today and the differentiation between what we had historically understood to either be the former Soviet Union or Rome has changed and changed drastically. Yes. Give us some of the insights in terms of your awakening to the events that began unfolding in 2001 that, in fact, have their history going back to the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries? Well, I had, like everybody else, saw 9-11 and uh, was just wondering what is going on. Um, Europe is basically, all you can hear there is crickets, and, and Russia was losing its power, and and uh, so I, I sought the Lord in this. What's happening? And he caused me to run across some work by a gentleman by the name of Joel Richardson, who was sort of a starter, if you will, of, I believe, of the uh, Islamic Antichrist theory, that the Antichrist is going to be a Muslim and that his empire is not Rome, but Islam. And he had had many experiences in the Middle East and and, uh, worked with Muslims and was familiar with Islamic writings and eschatology. And he was comparing Bible writings to to Islamic eschatology writings and saw a striking parallel, even with the false prophet between Islamic writings and revelation in the Bible. So heretofore, where we had thought largely this would come out of some sort of a political power be it Moscow or Rome. Now all of a sudden we find out, no, this isn't a great competitive political power, but rather a great competitive religious power. Yes. Elaborate. Yes. Two passages in the Bible that provided arguments for people that the uh, Antichrist was going to come from a Roman Empire that I realized had to be overcome. And I agreed with that because the, the statue 
in uh, Daniel chapter 2, and the people who destroyed the temple toward the end of Daniel chapter 9 were both associated with the Antichrist. And it had to be reconciled to this new theory. And so... In, in chapter 2, what struck me was in chapter 2, verse 40 of Daniel, it says that the empire of the iron legs must crush and pulverize the empires of the other metals, Babylon, Persia, Greece. And in studying history, I realized that Rome had never done that. Rome never conquered Persia. Rome only briefly occupied Babylon. And as far as Greece is concerned, yes, it thoroughly conquered Greece, but Greek culture and language completely took over Rome. So Rome never pulverized or crushed any of them. All it managed to crush was a single small Judean province down in the southeast corner of its empire. And as far as the people of the ruler who will come in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, the we had always thought that the people were Romans, because after all, it was Roman soldiers that destroyed the temple, set it on fire. But if you look a little closer in, in, at, at the historical sources, you'll see that the soldiers themselves, though wearing Roman uniforms and under a Roman banner, were Syrians and Egyptians and Arabians. The uh, historical sources tell us that when legions, especially in the eastern half of the empire, were based in a given province, they always recruited from the locals. And the, the uh, four legions that attacked Jerusalem had all been based in Egypt or Syria or elsewhere. Uh, there's only one legion that may have had Europeans in it, and they would have been Bulgarians. But uh, by and large, it was Syrians and Egyptians and Arabians. Our conversation today with author Mark Davidson, a look at Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline with me today in studio is author Mark Davidson. We're talking about his new book, just newly released and available through Amazon.com. You can also get it through Mark's website at 4signpost.com. That's 4, F-O-U-R, signpost.com. The book, Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. And as you pointed out, Mark, post 9-11, you began taking a look at what was going on, not only in terms of biblical prophecy, but was un- what was unfolding in the headline news day by day. And as we began, I think, here in the West to get a better understanding of the Islamic worldview. This is not just a peaceful religion hijacked by a handful of extremists, as we were told by then President George Bush, but rather a conflicting worldview that is at every level at odds with biblical Christianity. Oh, sure, they will acknowledge Jesus of the Bible, but they see him simply as another prophet, yes. not as the only Son of God, by only through him one might receive salvation. So it is truly an entirely different gospel that they preach, but not only a different gospel that Islam preaches, but then, too, a very different God that they serve. Yes. Elaborate. Well, uh, further on in the book, after I get past these arguments, I I look at Islam itself. I I thought, well, what is so special about Islam? And so I decided to look at their god, Allah. And Allah apparently uh, comes from the words al-illah, which means the Lord or the God. And it means to anybody, you know, whatever your god is, and you say Allah, then 
That's who you're referring to. But Muhammad changed that. He says, no, Allah is someone specific. And it came from Hubal, the, an idol that was worshipped down there in Mecca. Uh, his tribe worshipped it. And he made it the God, the only God, and tossed out all the others. Um, let's see. Oh, the god Hubal, the idol Hubal, actually sounds phonetically quite a bit like the Hebrew Habal. What we have in our English Bibles, Baal, and and Baal was the false god that most entangled Israel, and uh, Israel suffered the most punishment from God because of that particular false god, that um, I thought, well, maybe maybe there's some connection there, and it turns out that according to tradition, the idol Hubal came from Moab and was brought down by uh, trade routes and so forth, and ended up down there at Mecca. So interestingly enough, then we see the historical timeline that again weaves mm-hmm. us back into connections with false gods that mm-hmm. we see demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. But mm-hmm. in this case, it is the leading false god. I mean, we we can cite many false world religions, but yes. by far the most dominant. World religion, by far the most dominant false world religion, mm-hmm. whose teaching is again 100% contrarian to the teachings of Scripture as we know from a Judeo Christian perspective, uh, would be Islam. Yes. Uh, of all the false gods, like you have Molech, which means the king, uh, but you have Baal or Hubal, which means the Lord. And it is the only false god, the only worship of, of a false god that tries to replace God himself. Uh, an idol that's called the Lord. It's like, oh no, only our God is called the Lord. So Allah is the God or the Lord to whomever is speaking or saying that name. If you hear that from a Muslim and he says Allah, you know you can believe that that God of his is not your God. It is not Jehovah God. It is not the Father of Jesus Christ. It's a totally different God. But if an Arab speaker who, or an Arabic speaker who is not Muslim, say a Christian that lives in Yemen, and he talks about Allah, then you can probably be assured that it, that is your God he's speaking of. In fact, I've seen in Arabic Bibles, they refer to Allah regularly, our God, as Allah. Because in the original Arabic, it does mean that. The only reason we, we associate it with being the Islamic God is because 99% of all Arabic speakers are Muslim. All right. With that said, walk us through, if you would, and we don't want to give away the entire plot of the book, obviously, but walk us through then some of the connection that you've seen then through Ezekiel and Daniel in specific that begins to, to write the story that helps us better understand that we're not really talking about Rome here or even back in the day of the old Soviet Empire, but rather more more accurately and given what's going on in the current uh, historical timeline of, of the spread of Islam, how it is spreading, the manner in which it's spreading, that we're actually talking about the Antichrist coming up out of Islam. Walk us through that. All right. Well, I started by exploring, I I realized I had to go back and explore the entire Bible, particularly the prophetic books, including Revelation. I was looking for those passages that would speak of the times before the tribulation or times before uh, those events that we knew were the Antichrist, like the little horn coming up out of the beast with the ten horns, or the little horn that comes out of the four horns of the goat in Daniel chapter 8. So I, I caught these passages, and in looking at them in detail, it it actually says, toward the end of each vision, that these visions are 
applicable to the end time. They're not ancient times. They haven't been fulfilled yet. Um, in Daniel chapter 8, the angel tells Daniel twice that this vision pertains to the end time, the time of breath, the time of the end. And in Daniel chapter 7, the beasts are still alive when Christ arrives. In fact, it even says, and they were allowed to live a little bit longer after Christ had arrived. So they're contemporaries of the end time. They're also contemporaries of each other. And then in looking through Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8 and realizing these events probably pertain to the end times and realizing that if the Antichrist was coming out of the Middle East in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, we're talking about the nations in that area and, and what happens to them prior to the Antichrist, the seven seals of Revelation chapter 6 began to appear. The first four seals, which are the four horsemen, prior to the fifth seal, the fifth seal being the martyrs that died during the tribulation. The first four seals then could reasonably be considered to be prior to that, prior to the tribulation. And as it turns out, when you look at and you lay out all the pieces on the table of, of the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7 and the ram and the goat of Daniel chapter 8 and the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6, that the four horsemen and the four beasts all come together to form the same four sets of events, that all three visions are talking about the same set of events but from different perspectives. And that's the picture that gelled, that formed before right. my very eyes. Walk me through then, because you, you commit some time inside the pages of Hidden in Plain Sight to some very specific members of this cast of characters, uh, one of whom was Iran. Yes. And of course, we know Iran is capturing a great deal of attention in the headlines these days. We also know that Iran, more so than most nations, though certainly not exclusively, has has very forcefully set herself up against Israel. Ahmadinejad uh, yes. uh, specifically has talked about the desire for the destruction of Israel. Now, while yes. that's talked about amongst a lot of countries, not in as public a fashion and an abashed fashion the way Iran has. What is Iran's potential role in all of this? Well, there are four sets of events that uh, pretty much fall out of these visions. And Iran will be the dominant player of the second signpost, the second set of events. The first set of events have already come and gone. And all we saw was things going on in the Middle East and didn't realize their significance. But that's over. And so now we are seeing the beginning stage of the second sign, the second signpost. And yes, Iran will dominate it. What are some of those events of the first signpost, just to put this in the time order sure. for the benefit of our listeners? Sure. Well, we have the four in the four beasts we had the first beast the lion with wings and of the four horsemen we had the rider on the white mm -hmm. horse those two symbols make up that first signpost and what we are looking at is that those beasts represent modern nations of the middle east the modern inheritors of what we think of as the ancient empire so what had been at one time uh, for example babylon uh, is now iraq today, now iraq yes mm -hmm. and the rider on the white horse was re received a crown. He received a Stephanos crown, not a diademe crown. He competed against others and won and became the leader of Iraq. And this rider on the white horse, he also kind of strutted around on his white horse, calling himself a hero. And that's what heroes do. They ride white horses. That's common in history as well as in the Bible. And in... Uh, then he was also uh, had a bow, and that bow is the capability to launch missiles, to launch, you know, airborne projectiles. And uh, no mention is made of the arrows. Did he have arrows? 
Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say he did. doesn't say he didn't. said he had a bow. It just said he had a bow. And the Greek word for bow is toxon. The Romans picked that up to mean poison, but toxon actually originally meant archery. And poisons today can be chemical or biological or radiological, i.e. WMD. Mm-hmm. Our conversation today with author Mark Davidson, a look at Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline with me today in studio is author Mark Davidson. We're talking about his new book, just newly released and available through Amazon.com. You can also get it through Mark's website at 4signpost.com. That's 4-F-O-U-R, signposts.com. The book, Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. You have walked us, Mark, through... Two of the four signposts, and I don't want to give the whole plot away, as we say, because there's so much more to come. But as we wrap a bow on your entire analysis of what you have seen, not only in Scripture, but what you see happening in headline news, what's the big warning for the church today? Some would argue that, well, this is all very well fascinating. Nobody really knows for sure. And so in the meanwhile, let's just kind of go about our business. But I would suspect, as uh, in all cases where we're, we're given Scripture in advance, from a prophetic standpoint, yes. uh, whether it's heralding the coming of Jesus Christ or other events, that there is a warning that is to be heeded by the church. What's the warning here? Well, the warning is that the next event is going to be rather um, horrendous, I guess. is I don't know how else to put it. Uh, we saw, I mean, the Bible talks about, I believe, this, this leader of a modern Babylon, Iraq, Saddam Hussein, and then the the uh, unnatural things that are done to the beast, to the lion with wings, where he was forced to stand and his heart was replaced, that's Iraq. It was democratized. You take a country that has anciently known nothing but despots and, and tyranny and try to turn it into a, a democracy. How unnatural. And then the next step is Iran and the, our, the struggle within the government. But the fruit of that argument, when that when that's resolved and the lower horn becomes the taller horn, then becomes the next event, part of the second signpost, the main part, and that is a war in the Middle East, a major war in the Middle East, where Iran will run out to the west, all the way to the Mediterranean, to the north and to the south and to the Arabian Peninsula, and occupy, invade and occupy. And they are told, the bear is told, to go from country to country to country to country. And Ahmadinejad has said that his country, Iran, its mission is to spread the Islamic revolution, mm-hmm. to go from country to country to country. The ram is told to go north, south, and west. The bear is told to consume much flesh, and the red horseman is given a sword to allow men to slay one another. And Iran then will be able to occupy and control all of the oil feeds, oil fields within Iraq, Kuwait, the Gulf states, and Saudi Arabia, thereby potentially being able to shut off one quarter of the world's oil flow. And to make good on their promise to wipe Israel off the map? No, Israel will not be bothered or touched at this time. They may get pressured, but I do not believe at this time they are a target. So essentially then, what we're talking about is Iran coming in and laying to waste the weaker, more vulnerable 
Islamic neighbors? Not so much laying to waste, causing their governments to change, forcing a different mode of rule. Some of this in response to the so-called Arab Spring? No. uh, Actually, the Arab Spring pertains to signpost number three. Um, That's the the Arab Spring is setting us up for signpost number three to happen. Um, What what Iran is going to do is start a Shia revolution within all the various countries in the Middle East, east of Turkey and east of Syria and east of Egypt. So now now the Shia are at war with the Sunni. Yes. Yes. And so the dethroning of Saddam Hussein, bringing him to justice forcing about a change in power, which heretofore had been largely a secular government. We're now seeing the drive toward a religiously dominated government, which I think is going to be true again in in Egypt and Libya as well. Previously secular, now swinging toward a religious or, or Islamized government. So where we would think we did a great thing in terms of turning the country toward democracy. Democracy. What we've really done is we have we have removed what had been one of the natural enemies. Yes. of Iran, that contained. to some degrees had contained Iran, that now all of a sudden that one roadblock to Iran has been taken out of the equation. Yes. The United States is completely responsible um, for the first signpost, the raising of the lion. You know, there's been this question of, well, why don't we see the United States in prophecy? Why doesn't the Bible mention anything of the United States in prophecy? And here I believe we see a case where the United States is not mentioned, but the actions of the United States are displayed quite plainly. Mm-hmm. It said the lion was forced to stand and its heart was replaced. Well, who did that forcing and who did that replacing? It was the United States. So we are effectively being used yes. to bring about the fulfillment of prophecy. Yes, and I, I believe that when George Bush said he believed God told him to go into Iraq, I I believe it. Just perhaps for different reasons. For different reasons than we thought. It. Yes. Walk us through briefly, if you would, Mark, the fourth and perhaps most critical signpost. Well, at the end of the third signpost, the four nations will have completely taken over the Middle East and formed this great confederacy. Mm -hmm. It's a four-nation confederacy, not an alliance, a confederacy. The Bible shows this political unity, if you will. They see themselves as effectively, what, standing up against uh, the infidel like the United States? No, as against Shia Islam. Okay. Now, I don't know what form of government they'll finally take, but it's going to be Sunni. You know, um, but they will rule from Libya to Pakistan, you know, from the borders of western borders of Egypt to the eastern borders of Iran. And it's going to be one great nation. But when that leader, that dynamic leader, the goat, the great horn of the goat dies and breaks and the four nations come out from it, the four nations will break from the great nation. Susa will be the near the hub of the where the four boundaries come together. Uh, Daniel said it would be the direction of the four winds, so it would be the four nations. When that occurs, the fourth signpost begins. The Antichrist will arise out of one of those four nations. Just like in Daniel chapter 8 with the goat, the small horn arises out of one of those four horns. It's going to arise out of one of those four nations. And it says that this goat, this goat's horn, the little horn, grows in power to the south and to the east. And if you can imagine, and I show it in an illustration in the book, the four nations, basically northwest, northeast, southwest, and southeast, for the power of the Antichrist to grow to the south and to the east pretty much means it has to start from the northwest quadrant. So that would be the Turkish, Syria, northwestern Iran area. And uh, he will arise as the ruler of that nation. 
There may be a lot of chaos. In fact, there may be one ruler after another. We won't know who it is. But when he reaches out to conquer the Egyptian nation and then the Arabian nation to unify them, I believe the Bible is telling us that he's the one. Now, his true nature as Antichrist won't be revealed yet. The Bible says it's not revealed until he actually is starting the, tri- the tribulation. But he would be the, uh, the candidate. The one question that whenever a discussion of eschatology comes up, folks want to immediately go to, and maybe it's a good point to wrap up our conversation on, and that is, as we take a look at the timeline of all of this, we know that there's been much wrestling over Daniel's 70 weeks. Given where you see us in the timeline, that mm-hmm. we have completed one of the four and are on the cusp of the, of, of the opening of the second, mm-hmm. with two more to remain, uh, can you hazard a guess as to what kind of a timeline potentially we're talking about? Well, I uh, went to links in the book to uh, avoid that. Just that, yeah. <laughs> and leave it but, to me to ask you that question. Yeah, but, but, I mean, if you were to ask yourself, how long does it t- would it take Iran to invade the Middle East? How long would it take four nations to come back and form a great nation and break up and then one of the four pieces start to reunite the other four? All right, let how me long ask, would that take? Let, Five, ten, twenty years? Let me answer the question for you, then. Mm-hmm. In the same period of time that we saw the collapse of the Berlin Wall... The cessation of the Soviet Empire, the breaking up of that, the coming together of the European Union, uh, the the beginning of the dismantling of the empires of, of people like Saddam Hussein, all of that has taken place, in some cases, barely a generation. Right. I believe so, we have maybe a generation. So the, the short answer is, look up. Because your salvation draweth nigh, while no man knows the day or the hour, we know assuredly that he will come. And that uh, certainly while we are given the mandate to occupy until he returns, uh, there's much that can be seen uh, where many of these stories are uh, concealed within Scripture. Uh, They are beginning to be revealed within the headline news. And I think that uh, Mark Davidson does an excellent job in kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together, so to speak. It is certainly a new twist on what we heretofore had always understood to be uh, the involvement of Rome as being the seat of power from which emanates the Antichrist. But when you begin to clearly understand the role of Islam in the world stage of these two major differing worldviews between Judeo-Christendom on one hand and Islam on the other. Then all of a sudden, the pieces of the puzzle of Ezekiel and Daniel and the book of Revelation all begin to come together. It's a fascinating look at what heretofore has been considered to be Hidden in Plain Sight. That, by the way, the title of the new book. And while published by Zulon Press, you can get it through Amazon.com. Also available through Mark Davidson's website at 4signposts. That's F-O-U-R, 4signposts.com. I know we've just kind of scratched the surface today, Mark, but we appreciate you dropping by for a visit. And I think we all have a lot more homework to do with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and your book right in the middle. Thanks again for a great job. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. A look at Hidden in Plain Sight. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.